A corporate takeover makes headlines. What lies ahead for NDTV and broadcast journalism in India? Dangerous content in Ethiopia with allegedly deadly consequences. Facebook gets taken to court. And from the margins into the mainstream, the changing news landscape in Italy. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. India's richest man, Gautam Adani, is in the midst of a takeover of NDTV, a news network considered to be one of the last bastions of critical journalism on the Indian airwaves. It's not a done deal, not yet, but if this sale does go through, the implications are not good for broadcast journalism there. Adani has business interests that are vast and diversified. In many cases, his companies rely on government contracts to make their money. Plus, he's an old friend of the Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. So what are the chances that Adani will put that relationship at risk by prioritizing journalism at the channel he could soon be acquiring over the profitable partnership he has had with the most powerful man in the country? Not great. Our starting point this week is New Delhi. There is no country that churns out broadcast news on the scale that India does. Consider that Germany, with its 83 million people, has six 24-hour news channels operating in German. The UK, at 67 million, has five reporting in English. India, population 1.4 billion, has more than 400 channels churning out news 24-7 in multiple languages. So why would the takeover of just one of them, NDTV, by one of the richest people on the planet, Gautam Adani, be such a big story? And why would it provoke one of the channel's most revered journalists, Ravish Kumar, to just up and quit? लेकिन आज के दौर की तरह भस्म युग भी नहीं था भस्म युग से मेरा मतलब है जहां इस पेशे की हर अच्छी बात तेज गति से भस्म की जा रही हो हर समय में देयर हैव ऑलवेज बीन चैलेंजेस टू जर्नलिज्म इन इंडिया देयर हैव बीन इंस्टेंसेस बिग एंड स्मॉल व्हेन न्यू स्टोरीज वर इदर सेंसर्ड और जस्ट नेवर अलाउड टू बी प्रोड्यूस्ड एट ऑल but we've never had a period like this one where the ethics and standards of journalism have plunged so low that's what ravish kumar was highlighting especially when it comes to news channels our journalism has become a symbol of all that is wrong with our society bahut sari buraiyon ka prateek ban gayi hai kai baar to apni nirasha what ravish is is referring to if you do not have you know basic tenets of the profession which is let's say trying to have a public service mission trying to kind of question the powerful well then what is really left of your profession good evening and welcome to the world this week ndtv was one of india's first privately owned tv channels it got its start in 1988 launching its 24 hour news network 10 years later hundreds of news channels have since sprung up and the vast majority now reflect and in many cases sell the politics of prime minister narendra modi's bjp party there is no other leader as popular as prime minister narendra modi since modi came to power in 2014 more and more channels have aligned with the bjp's hindu majoritarian policies 
If that means parroting attacks against Indian Muslims, so be it. The BJP government can squeeze media outlets that don't cooperate. By denying them government ad revenues that they need to stay on the air or in print. That, combined with their owners' vested interests, some ideological, but more to do with their businesses' bottom lines, and critical journalism goes out the window. NDTV has been one of the very few exceptions to that rule. For example, in the, in the recent, recently concluded state election in Gujarat, so you know this is the NDTV did a very good report, which nobody else showcased. NDTV reporters found out that uh, the entire village has no electricity, no paved roads, no schools, no water. 54-year-old Usha Ben hasn't had access to a toilet here her entire life. In mainstream media, nobody covered uh, those things like uh, NDTV. So that's what they did, and uh, those in power seems they didn't like it. The Indian media landscape is dominated by two primary sources of revenue, corporations and the government. The pandemic has had a debilitating effect on the corporate sector, and that put the government in the driver's seat. Government ads have become a vital source of income for media outlets, so it creates a difficult situation. You cannot be dependent on government funds and then ask tough questions of it. There is a paradox right now in Indian media. There is a proliferation of newspapers, uh, TV channels. What you don't find is the diversity of opinion. At the same time, virtually every piece of news that is shocking about this government has been brought to us by an Indian journalist first. And when news media's control goes into the hands of business persons who are beholden to the government, I think they're less likely to challenge the government or expose its misdeeds. Gautam Adani has said that will not happen at NDTV. We contacted his company, which directed us to an interview he gave to the Hindi newspaper Dainik Jagran, in which Adani said he considers NDTV to be a public service responsibility, that there will be a very clear line between ownership and editors at the channel. That is cold comfort, however, to media analysts who point to Adani's ties to Prime Minister Modi, going back to their days in the state of Gujarat, where the billionaire and the politician both got their starts. It's impossible for anyone in India today to be unaware of Gautam Adani and his relationship with our Prime Minister. After his electoral victory in 2014, Modi arrived in New Delhi on a chartered plane owned by the Adani Group. Back then, Adani was ranked 22nd on the list of Indian billionaires. Today, he is one of the wealthiest Indians and the third richest person in the world. The close relationship Adani has with the Prime Minister is a matter of record. You can easily find photos of them in private meetings on the internet. And NDTV is the only news channel, uh, one of the few certainly, that is that does not conform to uh, the line peddled by the government. If Adani was good for NDTV, the people who founded NDTV wouldn't be worried about it. If they felt that Adani was going to infuse money into it, give it a facelift, they'd have welcomed his intervention. That's a channel that could do with a facelift. 
but they are the ones most worried about it and we can infer from their fears about what lies in the future. NDTV was kind of the last man standing really. Everybody pretty much had caved in. Do we need uh, to penalize people or do we need better governance, education, more access to contraception? So the only channel that ended up asking the hard questions was bought by somebody who's close to the government is, is a very problematic um, situation. Gautam Adani initially bought 29% of NDTV, then acquired another 8% this month. That makes him the company's biggest shareholder at 37%. Critics of this takeover point out there are many industries in India far more profitable than television news. So why would Adani invest in it, if not for the influence his money can buy? The billionaire can make all the promises he likes. But having seen so many of their news channels surrender their independence to the state, Indians have good reason to fear that NDTV under Gautam Adani will do the very same. We don't know yet that uh, how the editorial uh, changes are going to take place in uh, the channel. But if NDTV is forced to follow uh, the government line as like uh, all other uh, channels are doing right now, then <laughs> it's, it's, it'll have a devastating effect on Indian news media. Going forward, you know, I see hope in a lot of independent digital publications, in YouTube channels uh, that are doing news, the kind of media that are actually asking uh, the hard-hitting questions that need to be asked. And so critical journalism per se, I wouldn't say is dead, like clearly not. But if you look at it from the lens of television news, yeah, it's a huge blow. In today's India, I think owning the media results in serious or considerable political clout. It's one of those things you end up having if you're rich. People have football clubs, some people have news channels and newspapers. But with NDTV, it's a way to control information, the flow of information, and squeeze off the last remaining bastion of opinion that is not so it doesn't matter whether we have 400 channels or 4,000. The media are not fundamentally independent. They are owned by corporate companies and do their master's bidding. Elon Musk's Twitter adventures are attracting plenty of attention, but there's another social media giant out there with content that can be dangerous at times, and it's being taken to court over it. Minakshi Ravi is here with the details. Richard, the company being sued is Meta, which owns Facebook. It's being taken to court in Africa, where it's being sued for nearly $2 billion. The case is before the High Court in Kenya, but it pertains to Ethiopia. Two Ethiopian researchers and a Kenyan rights group, the Katiba Institute, filed the case against Meta for allegedly allowing violent and hateful posts from Ethiopia to flourish on its platform, inflaming the country's ongoing civil war. The lawsuit claims Facebook failed to exercise reasonable care in identifying dangerous posts, including several that preceded the murder of an academic, Meareg Amare Abraha. Abraha, a Tigrayan, was killed a month after online posts called for his execution and included his address. His son, who is one of the plaintiffs, reported the messages to Facebook, but the company failed to remove some of them. 
Ever since the conflict erupted in Ethiopia in 2020, Facebook has been used to spread narratives dehumanizing Tigrayans. Last year, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abe Ahmed called Tigrayan rebels weeds that must be pulled. That post remains on the platform. Meta has said the company invests heavily in teams and technology to remove such content and employs staff with local expertise. However, the Facebook papers published by the tech outlet Wired in 2021 reveal the company does not have nearly enough content moderators to police posts from Ethiopia, a country of 120 million people and 45 languages. Among the organizations backing this lawsuit, Amnesty International, which says dangerous content on Facebook lies at the heart of Meta's pursuit of profit. And the time has come to hold the company to account. Thanks, Mina. It started out as a Facebook page, one that focused on a mix of what Italians call cronaca, general news, along with a lot of gossipy clickbait. In the decades since, Fanpage has grown into an award-winning investigative news site. It is one of the new digital-first news platforms gradually reshaping the staid Italian media landscape. They cater to a new generation, a tech-savvy one disillusioned with legacy media outlets and their traditional means of distribution. Mobile-first outlets that are better at listening to young audiences and at speaking their language. The listening posts Flo Phillips now from Naples on a Facebook page turned news source that symbolizes a shift in the country's media. Dovevo crearmi un alter ego per le inchieste perché faccio questo lavoro da sempre, da quando ho 20 anni a Napoli. Dovevo quindi proteggere la mia identità. Ci è voluto molto sangue freddo. Io ero Laura e quando ero Laura ero sola. For six months, Gaia Martignetti, a Naples-based reporter for one of Italy's most popular online newspapers, Fanpage, pretended to be Laura. Working undercover with the website's investigative unit, she took viewers on a journey into the world of anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists and COVID deniers. The result of that six-month project, three films entitled I Super Diffusori, or The Super Spreaders, an investigative trilogy that added to the list of journalistic exposés that have helped Fanpage make its name. Covering stories about political corruption and paedophile groups, Scandals involving the Catholic Church, businessmen and criminals, Fanpage's investigative output has had tangible effects. If we want to pinpoint one moment when Fanpage acquired real nationwide significance, it was after the bloody money inquiry into the illegal trafficking of waste in Italy. There was an undercover investigation, and it had a tremendous impact. It involved different political figures and led to a number of arrests. Something changed for us at that point. But Fanpage had existed before that, and it already had a readership in the millions. It's not just about undercover investigations. There's so much more to it than that. Traditionally, investigative journalism is the jewel in a news outlet's crown. And Fanpage has been very smart in making investigative journalism one of its specialties. Their investigations give it its high profile, 
and they're counterbalanced with more light-hearted content, celebrity gossip, that draws large audiences and brings in the revenue to pay for the longer-form content. Just think, in 2021, Fanpage became the fifth most popular online news outlet in Italy, with 19% of the market share. Fanpage got its start in 2011 as a Facebook page, and its editor-in-chief, Francesco Cancellato, still calls Facebook the site's big brother. But it's come a long way. In a landscape dominated by Italian broadsheets, familiar names like Il Corriere della Sera, La Repubblica, La Stampa, Fanpage has stayed away from print. There's no need. Its YouTube community, UMedia, equals that of La Repubblica and Il Corriere della Sera combined and its various platforms boast viewing numbers of more than 10 million. While its undercover investigative journalism strikes at the heart of Italy's political power, it is Fanpage's exclusive interviews and slickly produced videos that drive the daily hits. Cancellato says Fanpage is up there with the established newspapers, but with one major difference. Di sicuro so però qual è il DNA di questo giornale. Its DNA, unlike the majority of newspapers in Italy, stands out because our editor has no conflict of interest. And that means the paper can tell stories as they are. I believe this is what makes Fanpage different from other titles. It was true 10 years ago, and it's still true today. So does something as simple as Fanpage's location. Like legacy media outlets, the website has offices in the political capital Rome and the financial centre Milan, but its headquarters are in the south of Italy, here in Naples, a city known for its unemployment, underdevelopment and a reputation for organised crime. Fanpage is bridging Italy's north-south divide, offering journalists born and raised here the chance to tell stories from the south and give them a national platform. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Reporters like Gaia Martignetti, a native Neapolitan, who says she never thought she could make a career of journalism so close to home. Quando ho iniziato a fare questo lavoro, tutti quanti mi dicevano che non sarei rimasta a Napoli. Dovevo pensare di andare a Milano, a Roma, o addirittura qualcuno mi diceva fuori dall'Italia. Raccontami come essere una giornalista a Napoli. È una bella sfida perché questa città ha un materiale umano e storico che non trovi da nessun'altra parte. Napoli vuole essere raccontata, quindi ovunque ti giri trovi una storia. Ti faccio un esempio. Stavo tornando a casa, era circa mezzanotte, e mi sono trovata davanti a una stesa di camorra. C'era la polizia che ricostruiva la scena e questi bambini si sono avvicinati, mi hanno chiesto 20 euro per raccontargli cosa fosse successo. 20 euro? Sì, ovviamente io non gli ho dati 20 euro, però avevo il cellulare e ho ripreso questa scena e il giorno dopo ho raccontato quello che era successo ed è diventato il mio primo servizio per Fanpage. Martignetti joined Fanpage in her late 20s and found that most of her colleagues were of a similar age. In an industry traditionally made up of middle-aged men, new digital-first outlets, sites like Fanpage, Il Post and Open, tend to skew young. Open is a youth-oriented online platform founded by one of Italy's most established journalists, Enrico Mentana. A few weeks ago, he posted a job ad in search of four new hires. Among the prerequisites, applicants had to be young. Mentana's idea was to offer young journalists a start in this industry. I wouldn't call Open a journalism school exactly, but a kind of lab where we train new journalists. 
When we started our operations in 2018, Mintana would say to us, first, you need to learn how to bake bread. Three years down the line, I think he was right. Open has learned how to bake bread. We've managed to establish ourselves in the journalism industry as a reliable source of verified information with an in-depth presentation and fast delivery. Enrico Mentana is very experienced in and knowledgeable about the Italian publishing industry, and he spotted a niche overlooked by traditional outlets. So Open emphasizes fact-checking and the debunking of fake news on social media. Similarly, Luca Sofri's Il Post concentrates on so-called explainers. And then, of course, FanPage focuses on investigations. These outlets have all been successful because they've honed in on a specialization. For younger, digital-only outlets out to compete with established media giants, such specializations can make all the difference. Lacking the legacies and reputations of Italy's mainstream newspapers, these mobile-first alternatives walk a bit of a tightrope. Balancing the need to feed older audiences news content in forms they are familiar with, while targeting their younger audience with niche content that speaks to them. There's a saying I like a lot, which is, new media, old values. It's true that mobile-first journalism has its own language, its own style, but the fundamentals remain the same, and those fundamentals are essential for open. I'm conscious that our goals are extremely ambitious, perhaps too ambitious to encompass all the diverse challenges we face. But hey, that's where all the fun is. And standing still has its dangers. As Fanpage can tell you, its audience might be on Facebook one year, TikTok the next. If there's one lesson Italy's old guard outlets can learn from the new ones, it's this. Adapt or die. Innovate or risk irrelevance and possible extinction. This is what really drives us, constantly experimenting, innovating and changing. I believe it is our duty, our mission, to bring about innovation to the media landscape in Italy. I don't feel I'm in competition with Il Corriere della Sera or La Repubblica. My real competitor is anyone who is more innovative than I am. Altrimenti questo mestiere muore. And finally, Farha, the Jordanian film released earlier this month on Netflix. It tells the story of what Palestinians call the Nakba, the loss of their homeland in 1948, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people to make way for the state of Israel. The film and the attention that it's been getting around the world has riled officials in Israel who have urged people to cancel their Netflix accounts. Bots and spam accounts, pro-Israeli ones, have been driving the film's ratings down on IMDb, which doesn't quite square with the positive reviews from actual film critics and the fact that Farha has been nominated for an Academy Award. We'll leave you now with a list of other films and TV series on Netflix that would get lousy reviews in Israel, because in one way or another, they all tell the story of the Palestinian struggle. We'll see you next time, here at the Listening Post.
تجري المارادونا شو بعد مشاف اي حلم عشان المارادونا طيب يلا بول شو بول بقول لك بس جري المارادونا اه ما عاد يجري المارادونا ما عاد يجري Toilet paper, lemons. Security chief, move now. Would you like to try some chocolate hummus? You said chocolate hummus. You're insulting my grandmother. Lo siento, I did not know that hummus was Mexican.